welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 561 being recorded Thursday, October 17th, 2019. I'm Jim Tannis. I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Sebastian Peak. And we're glad you could join us. We normally record on Wednesday nights at 10 Eastern, uh, but uh, we're a day late today. We had a little bit of a scheduling conflict. So Jeremy's not here today. He's, uh, he's off, but uh, Josh is here. And Josh will have to leave. Uh, he's got to go to work this evening because there's no, what is it? What is the phrase? No, no rest for the weary, the wicked, the wicked, wicked. Oh, yeah, okay. I was thinking wicked, no rest for yeah. the wicked, not right. Okay. Whatever. But so Josh will be leaving yeah. us uh, halfway through the show, but we'll still got uh, a lot to talk about today. Uh, if you want to join us when we record live, you can head over to pcpro.com slash subscribe, where we uh, just have a, a mailing list that you can uh, join. We, we send out an email when I remember about an hour <laughs> or so before the show. And I've been, I've been pretty good. I think I've gone through three you have in a row here. Yeah. yeah, there was one today. I saw it. I got the mm-hmm. email at yep. about 9.05. Yeah, Mere PPC in our Discord chat keeps me on my toes. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and speaking of Discord, if you want to join our community, we've got a Discord community there. There's a link to join in all of our show notes over at pcpro.com slash podcasts. And uh, if you want to watch live when you get that email, you can head to our, we, we stream to YouTube, but we also uh, mirror that stream at uh, pcpro.com slash uh live all right well let's uh jump into the news today because as we said josh has to go so let's get as much done as we can uh let me just uh make sure we're on the right section there all right so let's head into the news uh uh as we've mentioned the last few weeks we're, we're doing news first we're switching it up so we'll cover news first and reviews at the end except for weeks where there's like a major huge product uh launch or something but uh the news this past week uh is some interesting stuff from uh, Intel, obviously the company has been trying very hard for several years to get to 10 nanometers. They finally got there with their mobile platform, the Ice Lake launch. Well, they got there in mass production with, uh, with Ice Lake, uh, last month or two months ago now, I guess. And, uh, the, the question is when is 10 nanometers coming to desktop? And there was a leak this week that maybe it's not, at least not for a while. Now, of course, Intel came out and had something to say about this but uh, let's set the what's the what's the background of, of what uh, happened here sebastian well there was a german hardware site called hardware lux that i i don't know if they specifically said i was i was reading it through google translate so it might not be completely accurate basically they said that there were like insider circles were reporting to them that the change to 10 nanometer for desktop is still problematic that there's a reason they're just on mobile currently with ice lake and they didn't allude to this, but it seems rather telling if you're buying into this anyway, that they had to fill out the 10th gen mobile product stack with, with 14 nanometer parts for the higher clock, higher performance, higher core count parts. And Ice Lake is limited to things that have really low base clocks and aren't as aggressive with turbo boost. So anyway, they're saying that because the mobile processors at these lower clock rates on 10 nanometer, um, basically they haven't been able to achieve the clocks they want for desktop. And this is claiming, and there was a graphic that I, I copied from their site that shows all 10 nanometer desktop being canceled, at least according to current roadmaps, canceled until 2022 when they're moving to Meteor Lake at seven nanometer. And 
uh, as staggering as this would be if this was actually true, when Tom's Hardware picked this up, I read about it through Tech Power Up. This going around, I watched this this the entire day the other day. Finally, Intel responded with a single sentence statement. Quote, we continue to make great progress at 10 nanometer and our current roadmap of 10 nanometer products includes desktop, end quote. They didn't say we're on track. They didn't say these products are coming, you know, on this date, anything like that. I I think the last I heard was that they were only coming in 2020 or even 2021. So, you know, we're, we just, we need, we need official statements, I guess. And, and, and public roadmaps that show us when they're actually coming. My, I, you could be really cynical and say, okay, well, you could interpret our current roadmap as, well, yes, the last publicly released roadmap that we showed to media, but maybe the revised one we haven't revealed yet or the roadmap that we'll be announcing next, uh, like, say, you know, right before the holiday break, we'll slip this in there is uh, 2022, but we haven't heard any of that. This is all speculation, of course. So it's, it was interesting. It's been reported all over the place. It, this comes on the heels of adored TV's latest video. And if you're familiar with him, uh YouTuber, very much uh, on the AMD side of things, typically has been very critical of numerous outlets for their reporting, including us at one point, shockingly, uh, and he had just released a video I linked to in the the uh, news post about this, where he was claiming that he had a slide that shows Intel is now going to. Sp- I don't know if it was that they're spending three billion, that it's going to cost them three billion in profits or what it is, but three billion will be lost in the effort to keep up with AMD on their current like generation of desktop CPUs with these price cuts that we talked about recently. So apparently they're just getting more aggressive with pricing and don't have that next product to release. We already knew that we knew they weren't releasing 10 nanometer desktop this year, but anyway, whether it's actually, I mean, would you buy into this gym at all, Josh? Like, I mean, obviously they've had problems with 10 nanometer, but could they potentially continue on with 14 nanometer plus plus, plus Skylake for two more years? Yes. Would you like me to expand upon that? Yes. Okay, so at the ARM conferences, you know, talking to Charlie and uh, another guy named David Shore, and and then we're all chatting uh, about Intel 10 nanometer. And, I mean, both of those guys have the opinion that it's essentially not very workable. Um, You know, it, it... I mean, at least they at least they have it in a place where they can start putting out chips, but it doesn't clock very high. Um, power is is really odd. Uh, bins and yields are not fantastic from what we understand. And um, they've dumped billions of dollars into it to get it to work. And it's a combination of of you know just uh, lithography and you know quad patterning i believe and 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 a lot of the materials that uh they put in it just just doesn't work in theory and on paper it's supposed to be this next generation promises all these things but you know it it was originally supposed to be start you know shoving out basic chips in the end of 2015 and now it's approaching the end of 2019 and they still don't have a a process that they can release mass amounts of of 
desktops and 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 higher uh, wattage products, and so that's why they had to keep going with the fourteen nanometer plus 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 plus. Who knows what? And they're probably focusing a lot of their um, work on on getting a a new seven nanometer that will be competitive because you know in terms of overall kind of size and in theoretical performance uh the 10 nanometer is actually supposed to be better than tsmc's 7 nanometer but tsmc's actually got a well yielding product that uh you know hits kind of all the benchmarks that that they need for that i mean you know in terms of power you can clock up there and 10 nanometers just is does not seem like it is economical for intel and they're probably going to keep the process around for a lot of these mobile parts because, as we've seen, the mobile stuff just doesn't clock up there. I mean, it works fine in, 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 in low power, but, you know, it's not going to boost up very high. And I think after you get to a point, it just, you know, starts consuming more and more power, even though, you know, density is good and, you know, some of the other characteristics are fine, but it just doesn't have enough to get them up into these higher TDPs. Um, I have no idea if they're ever going to make a, a Xeon out of it, just because, you know, you're looking at a part that it's going to be 150, 200 uh, watt TDP. And it, uh, you know, they can scale it out at lower, um, you know, clock speeds, but it just isn't going to get spanked around by, by uh, the Rome based Epic. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it would not surprise me if they did some very basic lower power I3 type and, and possibly Pentium based on 10 nanometer. Um, but I just don't see the, the, the kind of meat and potatoes desktop market of 65 watts and above uh, able to be really competitive in terms of the economics and also you know, the, the max clock speeds and, and power consumption and, and all these other things that, you know, 10 nanometer just, just hasn't delivered for these higher end parts. Yeah. And, I, and as I believe, I think Sebastian mentioned this when he was initially discussing it, but one of the speculations about interpreting Intel's PR's response was, well, for them, Nook is the Nook platform is a desktop platform and a Nook form factor would be, you know, very, would make a lot of sense for what they're able to bring yes. at 10 nanometers. Yes. And so maybe that's their way of getting around it, you know, saying, oh, you know, it's desktop. Hey, here's our, here's our latest uh, Nook. And it's, it's Ice Lake, Tiger Lake. You know, we know that there's, we, we've seen leaks about Tiger Lake coming to Nook. So maybe, maybe that's how this goes. Uh, either way, you know, they, they already had uh, roadmaps out and leaks out talking about a 2021 release for 10 nanometer uh, mainstream desktop outside of HEDT. So maybe the, the, maybe it was late 2021 and these these rumors are, are pushing that into 2022. But yeah. Which would, would yeah. make a lot of sense. Like if they're going to be end of 2021, why not save it? And it would be like their big, you know, CES time frame news and release and excitement and all that stuff. Well, if they can yeah. push it to the uh you know end of first half you know holiday season 2021 they're gonna do that um they they're feeling the the i mean they're not bleeding bad but they're they're starting to bleed to amd and amd right now i mean they're trying to get as much product on the market uh guys like dell 
are starting to really push the uh, the Epic servers. I mean, not as much as the Xeons, but you know they've they've got to convince the CTOs and and the and the buyers of those enterprise type uh, you know applications that you know AMD is is a good good uh, choice here. But uh, the window of opportunity, I thought AMD would only have six to nine months to maybe a year before would, Intel would, would come back with something that, that could compete. But it's now looking like two years down the road, maybe even two and a half that AMD has, that they'll have some process advantages over Intel and uh, they'll continue to increase design. So, yeah, um, Intel's looking kind of dim. I mean... They're still going to compete. They're going to have good 14 nanometer parts. They're going to be fast. They're going to compete on IPC. They're going to improve their integrated graphics. But, uh, you know, AMD is going to have a size advantage. They're going to have uh, some some other process node enhancements, like especially with the 7 nanometer plus uh, coming out next year, which uses EUV for a couple of the, the, the lower uh, layers uh, in litho. And... Uh, then they're going to go back to, you know, like dual patterning, quad patterning. I don't know all the details, but uh, they should be, you know, a little bit cheaper to uh, make. And, and they potentially could improve yields because you're going to have fewer mistakes in, in, in litho just because of the complexity of, of uh, what you have to do at seven nanometer. So, yeah, I know that I've kind of gotten off the onto a tangent when uh, comparing Intel to AMD, but I mean, you know, they're, can't talk about one without the other, and especially if Intel is unable to do a 10 nanometer desktop part and probably no 10 nanometer high end Xeons. Boy, that's a that's a big deal for AMD. It is, and and as you said, you know Intel will compete. And this this uh, this graphic that Adored had in his video, this purportedly leaked slide. I mean, I, I love this, you know, the piles of cash, because it is true. AMD yes. struggled for so long. <laughs> Intel has so many different revenue streams. Uh, it's th- This is this is the, the source of, of so much of the frustration in the enthusiast space amongst users against Intel, you know, if we're being practical here. Intel is, is just, they've got, they can, they can stand to lose billions of dollars for year after year. And I think we saw that with their price cuts on Cascade Lake X and Xeon W, uh, they they can do that, and and AMD can't. AMD's gotta gotta hit, uh, gotta get on base every swing, and AMD can take a few a few innings where they don't score a run and still come out. Uh, you know, they've got the time, they've got the money and the time, and and how you view that in terms of morality and competition and all that is up to you. But um, yeah, this is this is going to be really interesting if if Intel can just kind of sustain some blows here and and take that time to. To compete, so were you just making a Astros Yankees reference? Well, I wasn't. I don't really follow the uh, the Blurns ball as the Blurns ball. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who, anyway, if you're watching live, it is uh, three to one Astros in the bottom of the fifth inning. Okay, okay. Go they win. They go up three one. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's jump into the next story here, uh, and this is—I don't think we had any initial coverage on this, but Digitimes had a report uh, just today, or no, I guess it was yesterday, and that—that's uh, of course Intel's upcoming discrete graphics initiative. You know, they brought in Raja Kadori a couple years ago, and then of course we had a a bunch of hirings, including uh, our very own Ryan Shrout. Uh, now, not he's not exclusively working on 
on this side of things, but Tom Peterson from NVIDIA, a couple other people from AMD, some other gaming focused journalists and analysts. And so they are pushing to bring out this. Okay. Now, again, I, I, I got to always remind myself, how do you pronounce it? The, the, so it's, it's spelled X E is it Z Chi? Yeah, I think it's Z. Z. So they've codenamed their, their graphics initiative as, as Z X E. Uh, it's a going to be a 10 nanometer, uh, GPU uh, split between, well, I guess 10 nanometers for sure on their discrete side of things. Uh, and it may be going uh, to seven for their mobile variant, at least eventually. But uh, the leak here from, from DigiTimes is that we're going to be seeing these next year. Mid-2020 is the, the, uh, the leak about when we'll see this uh, entering the market. And, and this leaker says that they're going to they're gonna hit mainstream gaming First, of course, they're also working on uh, enterprise variants for for GPU accelerated computing and AI, machine learning, and all that stuff. Uh, but it may be a, a mid range uh, launch next year, and, and, and if it's at ten nanometer, that'll be putting it up against, uh, of course, uh, Ampere, which will be Nvidia's next product, which is, I think is at seven, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I think they were going from twelve yeah. to seven. And then AMD's whatever they'll have next year for their next gen, second gen RDNA based product. Uh, so, uh, what do you guys think about this one? Yeah, it seems like it's going to be probably a sub two hundred. Uh, I think the the, the rumor was ten eighty p gaming at sixty sixty hertz, and so it's going to be a uh, small chip, and it probably is going to be pretty low power overall. But for a GPU like this, it's not bad. I mean, they can always build it out kind of wider, and uh, you don't have to clock them up up to you know four four and a half gigahertz. And so you know, it'll be sitting at the you know fifteen hundred to maybe two gigahertz uh, because you know Intel does a tremendous amount of of hand layout of their designs, and so uh, they'll probably run perfectly fine. Uh, they've improved their drivers. Uh, this is, you know, one thing that you know, I'll be curious what their ASPs are. I mean, they probably will never go into that kind of detail of, of what these GPUs will be like. Um, but yeah, it's going to be kind of interesting to see. And it's, um, you know, when you start down kind of this alley of we're designing a, a graphics chip and we're going to use and we're going to really model it on our 10 nanometer you can't really stop with that design and say, okay, we're going to go to seven nanometer with TSMC or, or Samsung. And, and we're going to, you know, go with those foundries just to get product out the, out the door. It doesn't, doesn't work that way, especially with Intel. So it's, um, yeah, I, I can, I can believe it. It'll be interesting to see. I don't think it's going to knock anybody's socks off, but it should be mostly competitive and they'll certainly make it price competitive. They, we just saw AMD release. Of course, none of this really matters. We're talking mid next year. So I'm sure in, uh, NVIDIA will have some new replacement to the 1650, which is kind of their mainstream card. 1650, 1660, somewhere in there is your $200 card. And then AMD so far has just announced and will soon apparently have some sort of add-in board partner availability for their new mid-range 1080p gaming GPU. The Why am I forgetting already? The 5500? The RX 5500? Mm-hmm. So yeah. 
I'm sure that will be superseded by something by the time Intel comes out with their product. I worry about these longer development cycles, and they've been very public about the fact they are developing a discrete GPU, and it's not coming until, well, they said 2020. Now we're hearing mid-2020, at least from DigiTimes, which usually gets their information from the supply chain. So at that point, do they have something advanced enough to still be competitive with whatever NVIDIA and AMD have in another year? So... That's and then obviously they're they're not targeting the same thing. It's a different package, different clocks, different technologies, but ten nanometer has been a struggle for them so far. So at what capacity are they going to be releasing these? Will this be like a limited release in the middle of twenty twenty at ten nanometer? Kind of amazes me that they're taking this on when everyone else in the industry uses one of the dedicated foundries to produce their GPUs until is taking on GPU manufacturing in addition to CPU manufacturing. So it's just kind of interesting how this will all play out and what the availability will be like. Well, we saw from the rumors of strained supply at places like TSMC that that you know maybe Intel just doesn't want to end up like that. They don't want to be competing with Apple or AMD or NVIDIA for fab space. So by controlling is it their- that is it that they don't want to compete for fab space? when they could probably somehow make it worth their while to get, you know, a little bit higher up. Maybe. Yeah. They could get I mean, higher priority yeah. if they really wanted to. Well, I think yeah, it's I mean, just that could. they don't they don't want to use another fab. That they're yeah. sort of they've got they've capacity got. at their ten nanometer, it looks like, that they just simply can't really fulfill because of issues with it and and market and 14 nanometers i mean their their 14 nanometer fabs are are going full speed and they're still trying to catch up with uh, several different markets but yeah it, to be a fly on the wall at the board meeting when they start talking yeah. about process technology and fab utilization and and um you know should they go with the third party that would be pretty fascinating yeah absolutely. i think i think it would be more than fascinating i think there'd be people who'd be losing their jobs right and left yeah but you know, it's funny, on the, unrelated to the GPU news, but on the CPU side of things, think about this. And, you know, our own, as Jim alluded to, our own Ryan Shrout, former, uh, he was the founder of PC Perspective, former editor-in-chief who works at Intel now. Uh, maybe he's bringing balance to the force. What if Ryan is the chosen one? We knew him as the adorable Anakin type, but he went over to the dark side. He's with the Empire now, or at least you know, sided with them. So what if, what if AMD, who was once the tiny little rebel alliance, just a little ragtag group, they're gaining market share on the CPU space. And is, is, is Ryan personally sabotaging 10 nanometer? Is that what's going on? Did as chief performance strategist, did he say, you know what? My performance strategy is stick to 14 nanometer. It's working. Why fix what, what ain't broke? You know? So, well, I don't know. I just, I, we yeah, but I want to know speculate. who holds the higher ground. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because the higher ground is everything. Even though, you know, we're talking Jedi who can manipulate themselves in the air and can see the future in a lightsaber battle, apparently the Jedi who's slightly higher on a ledge will always cut the legs off of the other Jedi. Yeah. Well, it, it, Anakin was the superior uh, swordsman. swordsman. So he, he had yeah. the better technique. But Obi-Wan just cuts him out? I mean, 
Well, I mean, throws down with lava. Yeah, he would have he would have anticipated that. I guess the lava buried it. Anyway, let's let's keep going so we can get through the news before Josh has to leave. Uh, Switching over to the AMD side of things, uh, there's another. supercomputer win for amd We've, we saw a few earlier this year uh, uh being powered by amd's uh, latest gen and and in some cases uh with the announced early announcements uh, upcoming gens of epic processors but uh here's another one for you it's the uh the uk uh government funded uh cray archer 2 so this will be powered by epic rome uh there's going to be i guess let's see here 5800 uh, 5,848 compute nodes, each packing 64-core AMD Epic Rome processors, clocked at 2.2 gigahertz, and a mere, as Jeremy says, a mere 1.57 petabytes of system memory. So that works out to around 750,000 cores, good for about 28 petaflops. I mean, it just seems like yesterday we broke the petaflop barrier, and here we are just, just crushing it. Man, so uh, the uh, the register has uh, more details on Archer 2. Uh, so if you want to check that out, we'll have a link in the show notes to that. Can you imagine and if they just... Pretty... <sighs> Let's go ahead, John. pretty sure I... that uh, the reason why we haven't seen as many R9 5900s, which we'll also get to a little later, is, uh, you know, the, the, the chiplets that have been really, really well, they've all been going into Epic because that's their higher margin part and they're going to make a lot more money per chip than they will with, you know, shoving into a 50, uh, $500, um, you know, two chiplet, 12 core, 24 thread product. Instead, you know, these, these things are going to, you know, work better and at, at lower, uh, wattages. And then you can, you know, put eight of them on an Epic chip. That's where they're going to put them in and they're going to sell them for, what is their top end one? 12, 12 grand, something like that. Uh, I can't well, remember. The 7742 is about 7,000. Oh, okay. But still, that's, uh, that's a lot more numbers than uh, a $600, you know, $500 chip with two of them. Yeah. You Let me just correct you there, Josh. Math. I believe you said the, the R9 5500, it's the 3900X. 3900. Yeah. Ugh. Too many no numbers. No worries. Anyway, just if we don't correct it, we'll get we'll, we'll, someone else will will offer to correct us. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they're probably shipping a lot of a lot of these chips to you know supercomputer guys, Dells, whoever. Yeah. And as and as as you said, consumers. that that's the advantage of the chiplet approach. Yeah. You know, it's it's working out really well for them. If uh, if not a little bit frustrating for enthusiasts like me who want to buy very very fast desktop processors. But oh well. Um, and remember, we're still waiting on the 3950X, which is coming, I think, supposedly by the end of November. But we're waiting on an official release date for that yet. Yeah. Yeah. If you missed, uh, was it last week's show? They delayed it, uh, but it'll be coming out with third gen Threadripper, uh, which we also got some leaks this week about some core yeah. counts. Actually, I don't think we have. Let me, let's quickly address that. I don't have a slide pulled up for it. I'm not sure if we covered that but there were there were some leaks about third gen threader and it looks like from the leaks that it'll be so the current second gen tops out at 32 cores uh but and it looks like they're going to maintain that core count at least yeah. in the initial launch is the top end but the tdp goes to 280 watts i think i saw interesting 
So that's great news for core or, uh, clock speeds, right? At, at those higher core counts. Uh, I mean, you're going to need some good cooling and uh, it's not going to be for everyone, but uh, that, that bodes well for a clock speed improvement uh, in addition to the yeah, wasn't, inherent. Wasn't there a, a thread, new Threadripper cooler that came out and on the very back it said, you know, for use with uh, uh, CPUs with cores from 32 to 64 and 250 to 280 watts of TDP? I, I I don't yeah I think I saw something about that I don't recall yeah. what the details were but yeah it was it 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 foreshadowed some of the at least the TDP side of this yeah but yeah sixty four core at, at six at uh, two hundred eighty would be interesting too but I think that might cannibalize or that might conflict too much with Epic you think if they have a Threadripper at sixty four. <sighs> At that higher TDP, it depends. I mean, if if uh, it's you know it's it's lesser bin chiplets that they can crank up to 280 watts versus you know higher quality ones that are at 200 watts that go into the high end epic. Yeah, I don't see a problem with that. The the leak that I saw was actually just on Twitter, uh, Appysack, the usual uh, at tum underscore Appysack on Twitter. It was a screenshot of something. It looks like it's like a hardware configuration of something. I don't know if it's a motherboard or a pre-built system, but it shows AMD Ryzen Threadripper 3960X 24-core processor. So it looks like the branding would then be you go from 3950X, which is 16-core, and then Threadripper apparently would pick it up from there and 3960x would be the 24 core part and then i'm assuming that i mean i would assume there'd be three variants maybe there's just two maybe the next one would be like the 3990x and that'll be the 32 core part this time around but we're we haven't seen like this actual uh they haven't named these products yet we don't know clock speeds we don't know pricing so yeah, and I'm, I'm I can't find that Appysack tweet at the moment, but I'll have I'll, I put I'll put it in the, in the show notes. It's in oh, the you... staff chat. I just posted oh. it in there in the public chat. Oh, there we go. Let's see, we'll put a post together with this stuff. Yeah, just we'll, kind we'll of round we'll up links in the show notes. Point, yeah. Um. All right. Uh. So, uh, sticking with AMD, although in a slightly less positive note, although it may be positive for you, depending on what you bought. Uh, as we know, a few years ago, before the Ryzen Renaissance, uh, AMD had uh, bulldozer and pile driver CPUs that had a little bit of controversy around them because uh, it, it, they marketed them as the first native eight-core processors, but in reality, they were four dual-core or four linked-core. I don't remember the exact technical distinction, but they weren't truly native eight cores. And so there was a class action lawsuit as there tends to, to be with this kind of stuff. And uh, there's a settlement uh, that they agreed to, uh, I guess uh, it depends on where you are. So in California, it's up to $300 a chip uh, because of California's better consumer protection laws. And uh, you can head over to a website that the attorneys for the class, uh, class action have set up, uh, which is... Uh, there we go. It's amdcpusettlement.com. And, uh, you can file your claim to get your, your, uh, money. Now, again, also like class actions and many of them, that's not a guaranteed amount per person. It's a single pool that they've allocated based on an estimate of claims. And so if, 
if more people claim than they were expecting, they could run out and the claims could either, you might not get anything or everyone would get slightly, uh, slightly less. So if you are in this class and you're interested in pursuing this, head to that website uh, and check it out and see if you can get in there. And hey, 300 bucks, uh, that could go a long way towards getting you a nice Ryzen 3000 system going. So exactly, uh, pretty big upgrade for you there. All right. Um, next up, we've got uh, some news uh, from NVIDIA. Uh, as you guys probably remember, the Quake 2 RTX edition came out. It was pretty incredible, pretty fun. Uh, and it's free too, as long as you have the, uh, you, can, you can get the demo for free, or you can download the, if you, if you have the base game, you can download the RTX enhancements on top of it. And uh, some job postings uh, over at uh, NVIDIA noted, noticed by Hexus have indicated that some additional classic games may be getting the RTX treatment. Uh, they specifically mentioned Half-Life 2, Doom 3, and Portal as possible candidates for the upgrade. Uh, so nothing guaranteed, but these are these were job postings at NVIDIA's Lightspeed Studios, uh, which was uh, involved in the in the uh, Quake demo and some other software demos that NVIDIA has released. So uh, something to uh, to look forward to. More, you know, I mean, we, we've got modern stuff with RTX, and as we've talked about, it's sometimes hard to notice the difference, or at least it's the difference doesn't end up being worth the performance hit. But you got older games like this that can run reasonably well on your 2070. 2080 you know you don't have to go all out um it's it's worth looking into and i know I, josh you played the quake uh, rtx right i have and i mean yeah it's still a 1998 game it's uh you know the creatures still kind of look the same i mean they improved the textures quite a bit but it's still the same gameplay but boy the rtx does make it look really interesting and it and it kind of gives you a taste about what the technology can do when applied to other games. I mean, Half-Life 2, I mean, if they make RTX Half-Life 2, that would be awesome because think of the lighting that that had in 2004 and how it compared to everything else. I mean, Doom 3 was out at the same time and everybody was like, ooh, ah, but then Half-Life 2 came out. It's like, sorry. And that's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just another step up in in graphical fidelity and especially you know just the natural way that they presented light in there and so that'd be really cool if they could do rtx for half-life 2 yeah was, was that a text from john carmack saying hey come on doom was good no it's a guy complaining about kc football to me oh all uh, right well i know you've got to leave so let's quickly hit this last story before uh, josh has to head off and uh that is, of course, Stadia. Now, Stadia is Google's upcoming streaming gaming service that was announced earlier this year. We talked about it uh, at that time, and we now have a release date. It's going to be November 19th. That's when, uh, if you ordered those initial kits, the, what do they call them, Founders Kit, uh, Founders Edition, um, and uh, Premier Edition, it, you'll, those will be shipping to you for arrival, and then uh, you don't need those to play. That's the kit that includes a, a specialized controller and uh, Chromecast, but you, you can play with with anything, any controller, uh, and just a, a Chrome-based browser or operating system. Uh, you'll be able to start playing November nineteenth at nine a.m. Pacific. So, uh, you know, we've got a lot of questions about this, and and uh, we we know that Microsoft has their service coming up, and that's already started testing. I know uh, Paul Thorat over uh, 
at uh, Throt.com. He was talking about uh, his experience in the initial testing for for Xbox uh, streaming. And there's a lot of questions. I mean, Google Google doesn't have a great reputation with sticking with things, obviously. And uh, they don't have any any particular expertise in real-time streaming. They do a lot of video, and they've got data centers, but they haven't really done this sort of real-time latency-dependent kind of stuff. Uh, the reports we've seen seem to indicate it's good, but every time I've seen a report, it's been from somebody living like just down the road in Santa Clara from their data center. So we'll see how things go out here in the Midwest and in other locations. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. And uh, we also know the pricing is, is going to be, I believe, $10 a month for the base service, but that's just for access and the right to stream with the service. That doesn't include games. Or I mean, it might it might include some games like that they throw in but basically this is going to be like you're renting a pc effectively and you have to bring your own games through various services and we've seen that model before with like geforce now um the other the other note here though is that it's not going to have all the games available just yet at launch it looks like the first four to launch will be red dead redemption 2 uh, which is interesting because that is also the pc release window for that game uh mortal kombat 11 uh Kine? Keen? I don't think I've heard of that game. Uh, no. K-I-N-E. Okay, oh, I don't know. This is from the uh, the Stadia announcement here. Uh, well, whatever, but... Um, and uh, Destiny 2. Destiny 2, the collection. So uh, there'll be a limited choice at first. You know, this is going to be an early adopter thing. It's going to be heavily dependent on the quality of your internet connection. But, uh, you know, worth checking out. And if it works well, that's great for, for additional opportunities to to play games without having to lug around all that local hardware. Did you I mean, see, by the way, speaking of, of Stadia, did you see the thing on negative latency that they're talking for this? I put it in the show notes. It's the PC Games N article where their VP of engineering says that due to precog trickery, Google believes its streaming system would be faster than the gaming systems of the near future, no matter how powerful they become. But it basically sounds a little bit like they're anticipating what you will be doing next and actually initiating the control for you, in, a, in essence, playing for you. It's kind of cheap, man. Yeah, I don't know if you can turn this off, like, you know, enable negative latency, or if that's something that will be determined based on how far away you are and if there is too much latency for a good experience. But I feel like at that point, why not just watch a playthrough? If it's going to be playing the game for you, then <laughs> are you you just like feel like you're controlling it? Like, wow, I'm I'm so good at this game because I'm just I'm just here observing it. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, know. as we've talked about too, there's going to be a transition period here. I mean, I I don't think and I hope that local games won't go away, but there'll be a, a period where you take traditional games that are meant to be played locally and they have to translate to these online services. And it may not be the best experience, but as these gain popularity, you can design games that account for the latency. And it probably will never be the, quite the same, but you can create an experience that, that is, is, is taking advantage of that. Just like in, in the console, ga game manufacturer, game developers for consoles have coded their games to account for load times and, uh, you know, other, other console specific things. And, and it's, it, there's a way to, there's a way to create something here. Um, but we're going to have this, this awkward period where we're just taking the old and trying to slap it into the new and, and we'll see. But, 
Uh, we're going to take a uh, quick break now. We're going to say goodbye to Josh. Uh, so everyone wish him uh, a happy evening struggling with Windows server updates and and whatnot. And uh, we're also going to hear from our sponsor this week. So uh, good night, Josh, and we'll be right back. Today's sponsor is Captera, the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. What if you could make your work take less work? You can with Captera. Captera helps you find the right software for your needs fast so that you can get back to business even faster. Compare thousands of software options, read reviews, and instantly narrow your favorites. You'll have more time in no time. Find the right software right now at captera.com slash PCPer. With over 1 million reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search through more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management to email marketing to software designed for yoga studios and health clubs, software for medical offices, law firms, nonprofits, art galleries, wineries, for any business, small or large, and no matter what kind of software you need, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. For example, here at PC Per, we needed a new link shortening service to help us easily share links to our articles in places like social media and podcast show notes. With Captera, we found dozens of options and we were able to quickly pick the right solution thanks to Captera's honest reviews from real users of each app or service, easily comparable lists of pricing, licensing terms and features, and helpful screenshots and videos showing the software in action. And best of all, Captera is absolutely free. No sign up, no subscription. Just head to captera.com slash PCPer for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com slash PCPer. That's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash PCPer. Captera, software selection simplified. And back to the show, uh, We, as we were talking about uh, before the, the break there, uh, RTX uh, may be coming to some some classic PC games, but if you want to get even classicier, more classic, go back in time even further, there's been some updates to the very popular Internet Archives game, uh, uh, yeah. MS-DOS game archive. Now, we, we talked about this, it's been, I think, a couple of years now, but yeah, they've, they've introduced, I think it started with consoles and then expanded to PC, but basically, there's a built-in emulator, web browser-based emulator over at the Internet Archive that lets you just fire up and play a bunch of games, console and PC, uh, without having to install anything. And it it's not perfect, but it, it works reasonably well. And they've just added an additional 2,500 MS-DOS games to that archive this week. And so uh, we'll have a link here. Uh, if, you, if you search for Internet Archive DOS games, that'll probably get you there. But... We'll have links to the specific archive, and it's it's pretty cool. Uh, it's based on the ExoDOS program, which is a legally gray effort to compile all of the DOS games uh, ever, and they're they're making some progress. I think they've got over seven thousand, and it's this huge multi hundred gigabyte thing that they that they distribute through uh, Usenet and and things like that, and. Um, and and they're taking the the games within that that catalog and they're they're bringing them online at the Internet Archive, uh, as they talk about in this this post about this edition. You know, it's as I said, it's not perfect. There's some games that don't emulate well. There's some issues with like uh, keyboard collision where the browser is fighting for keyboard input with the emulator, and then also of course is is 
the as you get into the 90s you get cd-rom based games which can be yeah. several hundred megs and they've got to cache this stuff and so that means caching like 700 megs in your browser which can be a problem for systems with limited memory systems with slower internet data caps um and so they say basically just I mean, they, they have those, they, they, you can do it, but if that's a problem for you, maybe just avoid those CD games for now until they figure out a better way. But uh, it's it's pretty pretty cool. You can head over, browse through a bunch of the games and you just click and it, it fires up an emulator right there in, in your browser and play away. Uh, I've, I've, I, I've used the ExoDOS system, which uses uh, LaunchBox uh, as its basis. LaunchBox is unrelated to that. It's just a multi-game launching application, but they... They package it in to help you organize all these DOS games, and and that's pretty good. But uh, if you don't want to download, I think it's five or six hundred gigabytes. Uh, you don't want to download and manage that. This is a good way to go, just to check out some some DOS games. And uh, you know, like I said, it's legally gray. There's some games that are in these collections that are still commercially available, but there's many that yeah. are not. And and that's my view is is especially for those uh, if it's not commercially available. You know, in 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 at least in the American judicial system, you have to show damages for a civil suit, uh, and and I don't know what kind of damage you could you could demonstrate as the if they could even find the rights holder to some of these old '80s and uh, early '90s games. Uh, you know, what what kind of damage there could be if if you're playing a game that you can't buy anywhere. So, do you think Rockstar Games cares if somebody plays Lemmings in their browser? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I know that at one point they themselves gave away like GTA, the original GTA. You could go to their yeah. website and download it. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, it is it is an issue. As with everything, it's an issue of of uh, whether it's worth it for some of these companies because they've got to retain counsel who's got to go out and find you and then they're going to sue you and do you have any money? And, you know, so it's not, you know, a, a, a nonprofit like the Internet Archive, I, I don't know what the liability is there uh, and then even less so for individual users like i'm not saying go out and pirate the latest games but you know some of these old games you can't I find am. anywhere else jim i'll say it i feel like that's what you're implying so i'll just say it i all recommend right, well, all of our viewers and listeners especially to uh go to archive.org because apparently jim thinks it's pirating i find the internet archive to be a valuable resource for all sorts of iso files that would otherwise be difficult for me to find. Well, and often I, they even include high resolution scans of all the supporting documentation for the software that I find. Uh, well, that, actually that is that is a good point uh, for these older games that have that kind of uh, copy protection where you gotta look in the manual or match a color. They do include that. So, True, yes. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I'm gonna leave it up to you. It, it, I, obviously I, I'm a big GOG fan as we've talked about. I've bought hundreds of games from GOG over the years and if it's available there, I mean, go there and and do it and support programs like that to encourage developers to partner with organizations like that to bring these games back. But if it's not there, if you can't find it anywhere, do what you got to do. I I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, you can finally beat King's Quest. Yes, mm -hmm. looking at the chat here. I mean, I I like GOG too. It's the nice thing is unless you're willing to just play it in a browser and there are potential issues, some conflicts and things as you discussed, 
If you would like a better experience, then there's some tweaking and some things you can do with DOSBox to really make these programs shine on a modern system. And there's other things you can do too, like you can get freely available. And here's the thing, it seems like every time we talk freely available and old previously licensed commodities, not just the games, but things like the like the sound fonts, the ROM files from the MT32, the Roland uh, module, where if you use ScumVM or if you use DOSBox and have configured it to use uh, Munt, which is a, a, it's a like a MIDI emulation program that specifically does this, the MT32 and it's very, it was the CM32, I think, but you have to have those ROM files for it to work. So are you going to buy an MT32 on eBay and somehow get a ROM dump off of your personal MT32 to make, you know, scum VM work or to make DOSBox work with months to listen to the better sound of those old games that supported it? Probably not, but all the stuff is out there. It's just, you, you always run into these issues where it's either you go out and you're a nut, like some people I won't mention who have a variety of old PCs around me right now. And I own an MT32 and an SC55 Mark II and an SC7. I think those are the only MIDI modules I own and a variety of sound cards. And I play around with all this stuff whenever I have time, which is almost never. But for most people, DOSBox is a great solution, but you do have to have some knowledge and not every game works with all the same settings. GOG makes all that stuff easy because they have the pre-configured DOS. It's all wrapped together in a nice installer, like whatever CPU cycles, whatever settings needed to run that game, they probably have it working. Like you could actually get Wing Commander 1 working if they have Wing Commander, and I haven't checked recently, but it was a notoriously hard game. They've got the whole collection. Yeah, so... It's it's easy and the stuff is usually really cheap because there's a sale it seems every week. So definitely not. Um, like it's 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 worth buying on GOG if you have a Windows or a Mac computer. I honestly don't know what their Linux support is like. I'm sure Mirror PPC in the chat could let me know, but I imagine it'd be fine. Do they sell? Do you know, Jim? Do they sell like Linux versions of some of these old DOS games? I know that would probably wouldn't work for them. Oh, they do. Okay, Linux, so. Linux, and Mac actually. Uh, the, the the Windows okay. library is certainly by far the the biggest, but they do offer a variety of Linux and Mac games. It's usually the DOS based ones because that the, right, you can yeah. wrap it in DOSBox, which is universal, and and package it that way. But uh, it's 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 pretty good. It's not. Um, I haven't had a ton of experience with their Linux uh, side of things, except for when I was experimenting with Steam machines a few years ago. Uh, but the Mac stuff works great. The Windows stuff obviously works great. There's a couple of exceptions that it's a little wonky or it's not original, but by far it's it's your it's your best bet. And as you said, they're not they're not terribly expensive. It's a couple bucks. Uh, yeah. And they all and as you said, they often have publisher sales or genre sales. I mean, if you subscribe to their newsletter, it's like three times a week you get an email saying, "Hey, you're you know seventy five percent off strategy games." So it's. Uh, it's either that or I'll get an email saying items in your wish list are on sale. Like, did I put things on my wish list? And I go, and the stuff is like a dollar fifty. Like, I might as well just buy it if it's a dollar. That that's how I've ended up where I am. Because I mean, they, they've been around for a long time. Back when they were originally known as Good Old Games, and yes, um, I've been buying stuff from them for. I mean, it's got to be close to ten years now. Um, and and some stuff has come and gone, unfortunately, which is because some yeah, like uh, Duke Nukem 3D, because of like the 
the yeah, rights gearbox and, thing and yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's where i come back into the like well if i can't buy it from you then i'm gonna have to go somewhere else because you can't i mean you I, can't go a year without playing duke 3d i i couldn't find it i was frustrated by it because i wanted to buy it on gog my solution was to ebay the cd-rom so i just i just own it on cd-rom and i have to install it on a system old enough to run it which is yeah. you know not for everybody obviously um, and of course, the other advantage of GOG in general, I'm sure hopefully most of you have heard of it, but uh, GOG's whole thing is there's no DRM. When you buy a game, yeah. now they have a client, they have like a Steam-like client they call Galaxy, GOG Galaxy, which you can down, it like automates downloading and does friends and achievements and stuff. And in their most recent release, the 2.0 version, it also can pull in games from Steam and even track your console uh, library, just like to, to track playtime and achievements and stuff, which pretty it's pretty cool. But if you want, you can go in to your store page and download a standalone installer that will work. It is completely offline and it works without any server check or anything. So you can, and that's what I've done. I've got, you know, on one of my NASs is my, my backup of GOG installers. So if that service ever goes away or a game gets removed or whatever, I've always got a version I can play and there will never be any DRM to prevent that. So I, you know, I'm all in support of supporting, or I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of supporting companies that take that approach. Um, but let's, let's keep moving on here. Uh, the next story up is, uh, is Google and they've got, uh, the pixel four obviously was, uh, just oh, announced yes. pixel four and pixel four XL. And I believe Sebastian, you and Patrick talked about that uh, earlier today on this week in computer hardware. Uh, so you might want to check out that show. We're not going to go in too much into the pixel four, but one kind of, um, uh, interesting note on the announcement is that they're dropping support for Daydream, which is Google's yes. VR headset uh, adapter. Like this, this is basically a glorified uh, cardboard, Google Cardboard, but with motion control. Um, but the the issue is, and this is what Google's justification, I guess, for dropping it is, you got to stick your phone in there. And Scott wrote this up for us, and and he mentioned, you know, he he uses his daydream at night. He puts it on and can lie in bed and watch videos to relax and not have to disturb anyone else in the room. Uh, but if you have to change the volume or if it drops out of VR mode, if there's any kind of problem with your phone, you got to reach around and pull, open it up and, and, and pull it out. And, and so Google's saying, you know, that approach isn't, doesn't make sense anymore, especially when you look at things like the Oculus Quest that are, you know, it's a, it's a self-sustaining, it requires or it benefits from linking to another device, but it's 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 got its own display, its own processor. It's a standalone kind of experience that allows you to use your phone uh, as a supplement without having to completely lock you into the to the VR mode. So I know uh, I don't know if we actually ever reviewed it. I know that before the transition here at PC Per, the old team got a couple of these in uh, as like review units. I don't know if we actually ever published anything at that point, but uh, you know, we, we took a look at it and I tried it out and it, it worked well for what it was if you had a compatible phone. Um, but you know, I think Google's got a point here. Uh, I mean, you don't, you don't ever want to see features taken away, but this approach to VR and AR is not the future. It's uh, it's going to be the, the standalone stuff, I think going forward. You ever tried? I mean, I had the advantage of being, I, very briefly, I, I think it was the same unit that was around the office. I, 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 
Ryan sent it to me. I was testing out one of the Pixel phones. Maybe it was the first one. And then I sent it all back together. But it was just like, you know, for for a low-cost solution, at that point, I had already used, I think it was the Oculus Rift. And it's obviously not in the same ballpark. And I, I've never liked VR. I didn't. I never liked any VR experience because it made I'm very susceptible to motion sickness. And it, I never liked the whole like having to move your entire head to change your line of sight thing. And it wasn't until I used a prototype that used like eye tracking so that you could move your eyes and then your head sort of naturally could follow that I thought, okay, this is this I can get on board with. Now, what Scott's use case is different because obviously you're stationary. If you're watching TV, you'd probably be just looking at the screen. So looking straight forward into your, your daydream goggles, which are just projecting your own phone screen at you. You know, that's, that's totally different. Some of the simulated like theater type environments that, that I've seen or, would probably work well with that, but it's just, I think the tradition with Google is to introduce products and then subsequently cancel them. So this is just par for the course for them. Yet another interesting product that runs its course and then disappears. Yeah. Yeah. It lasted pretty long, all things considered. Oh yeah. For Google, it did. Absolutely. At this early age of this VR stuff, relatively early age. Um, Yeah. I've never liked VR either. Uh, And I think it's just because, my eyes, I, I have, uh, I'm nearsighted, so I require glasses, and I've never found a VR headset, whether it's something like this or a full-on HTC Vive or Rift, where I can get the, the focus just right. It just never, it's always just a little off, and then it just, I start getting a headache, and I can't get immersed. Although I did have one experience, it was, I think it was when I first tried the Vive, and there was a scene, it was one of like the demos where you're underwater on a sunken uh, pirate ship, and I just, I heard something from the, the sound and it was over my shoulder and I looked and this giant sea turtle was just coming up over my shoulder. And for a brief moment, I had that sort of escapist, immers- immersive feeling. And then, then I got a headache and it went away. So I was going to ask, like in that moment, uh, it's, I, I, I'll refrain. There was something about bodily functions and that sort of fight or flight. Uh, but you know, you don't have to, you don't have to share those types of personal experiences if you don't want to. It, it wasn't frightening. It was just like, I felt, I felt like for a moment, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm underwater and this thing is real and floating. And it was, it was amazing. It was cool. But again, just for a brief moment and, and hopefully. Now in fairness, in fairness, you have shared privately that you were in the bathtub during this experience, just to have that sort of immersive, well, uh, feel yeah. of being in the water. Which is how but, I usually use my VR headsets as well. It's like either bath or you, shower. I th- yeah. Probably. Yeah. Multitasking. I mean, yeah. And you got to be naked so you feel the water. That, that goes without saying. Yeah. Plus, I mean, any kind of tracking, like, like you know, connect in the living room, that sort of thing. Anything that uses motion detection. Your clothes are just, they're just going to confuse the cameras. So Absolutely. Well, that was the last of our audience. They just signed off. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> All right, uh, let's uh, finish up the news here. We've got one more quick story. Uh, this is uh, about a new headset uh, from Sennheiser. Now, wireless headsets and wireless, you know, gaming-focused uh, headsets are are uh, very popular these days. Uh, but battery life is is key. If, you know, you, if wireless gives you that freedom of being able to move around, not have an extra wire kind of dangling off of you. 
Uh, and some companies like you look at Corsair, they're using things like uh, Capellix LEDs and Slipstream wireless to reduce the power requirements and increase longevity. But Sennheiser here has got something coming up. It's the GPS, I'm sorry, GSP 370 wireless headset. And so they're advertising 100 hours of runtime uh, wirelessly. And we don't have a review of these. They they just uh, got announced here, but uh, it's uh, it's looking pretty uh, interesting. You know, 100 hours is, I mean, even the most dedicated gamer, that's a week of, uh, uh, of, of use. And so if you can go a whole week and then charge over the weekend or charge at night or something, uh, that's... Not too bad. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Uh, is, is battery life still a problem? Have the current crop of headsets, uh, have, have they have they gotten to an acceptable level? Is this necessary? I'm totally acceptable as far as my recent experience because most of them are in that certainly well into the double digits for hours. Like, it depends on what volume level you listen to, but somewhere in the 20 to, 20 to 40 hour range, I think is pretty common, at least for claimed battery life, which is usually no RGB effects enabled, volume at 50%. Uh, you probably need a strong signal, but that's like the use case of I'm sitting at my desktop gaming. I don't need RGB lighting effects because there's nobody here to see it. And I'm looking at my monitor and if they have decent sensitivity, you don't need the volume anywhere near 50% usually. So in that case, how long do you need it to work? I mean, even if you're going on a 24 hour gaming marathon, a lot of these are probably still going to do that at least some of the newer generation, there were definitely issues uh, with battery life just because of battery technology and that sort of thing in the past where I think probably eight to 10 hours would be pretty normal. But what's confusing to me about this, and I'm looking at over this GSB 370, the technical data on their website, the Sennheiser website is not very technical. So I don't know exactly what wireless technology they're using. There is a dongle in the box. I'm guessing 2.4 gigahertz doesn't specify. It says, um, under connection wireless. That's all. It doesn't. There's doesn't say Bluetooth. I'm assuming it's not Bluetooth. Typically, these things are not. They use 2.4 because it's low latency, high quality. But they charge via micro USB cable. They use a dongle, so it's just like pretty much every other wireless gaming headset. The design I think looks really cool. It looks like it'll be pretty comfortable. It's a wide split headband, so you have a little bit more kind of surface to, to uh, even out the weight distribution, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then they're not very heavy, 285 grams. It's not, it's not the lightest, but it's not particularly heavy either for a gaming headset. So I'd be curious to hear how good these sound because obviously Sennheiser are known for high quality sound. And then the other one, I think the one that uh, Chris, one of our contributors reviewed last was, I think it was the... He might have done the 670. They have a higher end, like $300 plus gaming headset that he did get to look at. So this this brings that down at least to the $200 level. That's their MSRP. And they have a cheaper one. I'm looking on the website. They do sell one in the $100 range. That's currently $79.95 on sale. The GSP 300, but that's wired. So this is kind yeah. of a pretty big jump to go wireless with Sennheiser here. Yeah, it looks like Chris uh, last summer reviewed for us the Sennheiser GSP six hundred. Oh, okay, it was at the time okay. priced at two fifty. And let's see, wow. he okay. won a, uh, an award from him. No, but we'll see. Well, 
we'll link to that as well uh when i link to this so you can you can check that out uh see how how things are different between these two models but all right let's uh, finish up with our uh, our only review of the week uh and that is a uh, a case review from uh kent kent burgess who's uh, one of our newer reviewers and he's been helping sebastian recover from his case reviewing ptsd and uh He's got the uh, this week the Fantex Eclipse P four hundred A. It's a mid tower case, and uh, it's an update. The P four hundred is a couple years old now, and as as Kent says in his review, you know he liked it at the time. Fantex has introduced a number of features, or they were they were the first or among the first in the case scene to introduce features like uh, like the, the removable f- uh, brackets for mounting fans and radiators, yeah, yeah, and um, and things like that. So. It, you know, they're a, they're a good company. I've I've got a couple Fantex cases. In fact, I'm trying to rebuild the studio PC here um, for for VMix with a little bit of, a little bit faster processor, so the editing will go faster. And I'm using a Fantex uh, Enthu Lux uh, for that build. So they're a good company, high quality stuff. But he says, you know, the original P400 it didn't have good airflow. It was uh, tempered glass in the front, looked real slick, but it was really not an airflow focused case. And so with this P400 a a for airflow uh we've got uh, a mesh front panel and that kind of solves that problem and uh yes yeah. a pretty good price too 69.99 is the price mid tower case uh it can support uh, it can technically support up to eatx let's see what's the maximum width here 272 millimeters wide and as we know if you're an ET- eatx builder there's always a little bit of variability there and it'll fit, but you won't be able to use the rubber grommets. It'll extend over those those grommets in the case, uh, which again is not uncommon for EATX in these smaller enclosures. But ATX certainly and lower, uh, no problem there. It's got a uh, you know PSU shroud at the bottom, that nice mesh front. Um, there's he, now he reviewed the standard version. There's an RGB version uh, for I yeah. believe twenty dollars more. Yeah, eighty nine. And this one is 69, yeah. yes. Yeah, and it, that that gives you uh, four fans in addition to the RGB. This only includes, I think, three or two? Just two. There's Just one two. on the front, one on the back. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but even then he said this is, that was, as you'll see, it was fine. Uh, so n- don't feel pressured to go to the RGB unless you really want that extra airflow. Don't feel positive pressure <laughs> to have uh, more fans. <laughs> yeah. But looking at it here, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's nothing. I mean, we've seen some pretty radical case designs uh, from a number of companies. This is not crazy, but it's it's a nice, rather subdued kind of. You know, it's it's a good look. I mean, I think it's an attractive case. And uh, let's kind of go through the pictures here. It's got a tempered glass side panel. So again, that's pretty good pr- at that price point to have a nice full mm-hmm. full uh, tempered glass panel. Uh, here's a look at the inside of it. You've got. Uh, SSD mounting there, lots of grommets for routing cables. Um, the the uh, shr- PSU shroud is is uh, removable. It's 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 very uh, it's customizable. Like a lot of their cases, you can pull out parts that you don't need and mount radiators if you want, or or move components around. So uh, yeah, nice look there. Good cable management on the back. Couple of five and a quarter inch, uh, or, I'm sorry, three and a, three and a half inch uh, drives at the bottom there. No five and a quarter bays. Uh, so I think Fantex, yeah, well, I, I, I've pretty much accepted it at this point because I've had so many cases over the last five or six years that just don't have any five and a quarter support. It's such a rarity, but 
I think Fantex, not only were they the first that I remember having those removable trays, as Kent alluded to, where, say, the, the top fan mount was just this bracket that came out, and you could mount your radiator to it and then slide that back in. It was so convenient. But things like the Velcro straps on the back, I think they were the first ones I ever saw do that, if I'm not mistaken. There was just a lot of really intelligent ideas that they put in place back in around 2016 when I was just kind of floored. I think the Evolve was the first one that I reviewed. And then Lee, for our site, checked out this original uh, 400S, the silent version, uh, back in 2016. And and I uh, linked to that in this review as well. Uh, But it's... It's a venerable design. It's been around for a long time. I've I've got at least two P400s. I think I have two on the other side of the room over there just stacked on top of each other. They were this ubiquitous case for like certain makers, like certain, I know like iBuyPower I think was using them for a while and some others. And it, certain pre-configured systems have used them. And for good reason, they're an attractive, low cost case. They used to be 79 bucks. This new version of it, they're not doing any new tooling or anything. It's basically the same chassis. The cost has come down, which is really nice to see. And still, for 69 bucks, you're getting a proven case design. You're getting a tempered glass side panel that's a high-quality uh, sheet of glass. And you're getting that metal mesh front panel. The only question I had about this was going to be just maintenance-related because there is no screen filter for that front input the metal mesh itself is the filter so if if you want to keep that clean you're gonna have to pop that front panel off and go wash it put it back on and the one thing about reviewing stuff is typically you're not using it for months and months and months you get the sample you test it for a couple of weeks like for a case review i usually spend a week or two with it I I put like my full build in there and use the system, do all the noise and temperature testing, but I never know. It's never like that. Okay. Six months from now, you drag it out from under the desk and how clean is the inside of the case? So that would be like a long-term follow-up for anybody on the staff who uses one of these things. But that would be my only question. Like how clean is the inside of this case going to be without a front filter? But really those arguments go by the wayside when you're thinking it's $69 and I, and I'm with Kent in his conclusion, and he likes the case, um, you know, recommended by Kent. But really, he pointed out for $20 more, you're just getting so much more. Like, the, the, price out some RGB fans, like decent quality, quiet RGB fans. And to get additional fans with RGB effects, if you're into that sort of thing, for $20 more, I would personally get the the 400A RGB variant for 89 bucks. But if you're on a budget, and especially if you don't care about RGB, like you alluded to, the the airflow in this case is good enough. And if you look at the the temperature results that he got, he, he's created a standardized test. And you can look at the actual makeup of that test and how he came up with it. But the, the bottom line is this case with his standardized um, airflow test outperforms open test bench in the same room with the same components. And that's really a function of airflow. And you'll see that open test bench is great. It's, it's convenient. I use it for benchmarking for obvious reasons, but for there's just no substitution for airflow. It's just, and it's kind of remarkable that in 2019, it's almost a novel thing when a case comes out and it's 
completely airflow focused. And obviously Corsair has their high airflow cases, the Air Series, like the Air 540. And then we've seen like Fractal's Meshify C is a popular case, this this smaller, like the compact mid-tower case with a mesh front panel. So this just adds another option to the mix. Fantex makes great stuff. I've never had an issue with any of their, their cases. So, you know, I, I nothing but positive things to say about this. And I want to not even the one who did the review. I'm just remembering using the P the P four hundred and to see I would like to see more cases offered with an airflow option instead of a glass front panel for sure. Yeah. Cause it, it it sounds like it would make it louder when you're taking away like an insulated front panel, but really with higher airflow, all the fans can operate at a slower RPM. And then you're pretty much just like graphics and CPU cooler dependent as far as noise at that point. Mm-hmm. Cause obviously, you know, we're, we're past the point of hard drives making a lot of noise. Even if you still use a large capacity hard drive in your build, not just SSDs, it, you'd be hard pressed to hear like a Western digital green, or really any yeah. Western digital drive anymore. They're all so noise optimized now. Well, I've got and, a six terabyte gold that would beg to differ, but uh, it's it's special. It it wants to be a wants to cause some problems. Really? Okay. Works, I, I haven't heard great, a hard drive in a long time. Loud. It is a single drive. I use it as just a backup for the video volume. And okay. It's, it's like it, it it is a grinding little thing, and I've done all kinds of checks on it. It seems to be working fine. It's been three years now. Works great, performance is great, but you can hear that sucker. And, I will uh, say the HGST stuff, like the drives I harvested out of uh, Easy Store enclosures from Western Digital, those make quite a bit of noise. Like when they spin up, you can hear it, and then they're kind of clunky and they make some like seek and access noises that I wasn't expecting. Um, but I apologize. I I don't know why it's not switching over to oh there we go okay so there i am i'm, I'm right I, here i don't i, I clicked the wrong it's okay button. it just um i wasn't doing anything visual yeah i don't know what that was about it's it's sorry yeah if, um, if you're if you're super sensitive to component noise maybe mesh front panels aren't for you is what i'm trying to say but if yeah. if you have quiet components already like that uh, i actually have it right here this giant msi video card i recently reviewed these things the default fan profiles for them is is silent at idle and then like 1200 RPM at low. The modern big coolers like this make almost no noise. I measured this one at like 32 and a half decibels under full load. So it's it's not going to be uh, loud in the room to have a case like this. That's all. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Here in the chat, a quantum fireball. Okay. Quantum Fireball hard drives, if you're not familiar, are the single most obnoxious hard drives. I don't, I, I've only experienced a Bigfoot once and I, I didn't do a side by side. I don't own a Bigfoot. I have two Quantum Fireball drives, actually, one in an old HP system that's a, like a throwback to the one I, I grew up with. The first PC we had when I was a kid in the house was an HP Pavilion that had a six gigabyte quantum fireball hard drive in it. It was an AMD K62 system, 64 megabytes of RAM. And it was that that high-pitched whining sound that to me was just what it sounded like to use a computer, but I always found it kind of annoying after a while. To go back and hear that again, I'm like, no, I can't, I can't do this. It's 
those drives are I, I don't mind clunking, grinding. I I miss hard drive sounds. I would like I kind of like simulated hard drive sounds from an SSD. I think that'd be a novel idea that nobody would ever buy. But yeah, Quantum Fireball for some reason they work. They work 20 years later, 30 years later, but they make this horrible whining sound that once heard is never forgotten. Jim is speechless. I mean, he's not I'm speechless. Spe- sorry, but sorry, he's muted. Yes. Um I I was about to say I've, I've somehow broken VMix and I have to use the secondary means of switching cameras and so I don't know I don't know what okay. I did but there might be an issue but split screen leave it on split screen uh, well, it's I, the, I do wanna uh, quickly, the CNN style I want to point out uh, that there is a vertical GPU bracket available for this P400A case it's not included uh, but it's an optional accessory and so they sent it to Kent and he uh, he installed it just so you can kind of get an idea so you know that's that's an option there too if you want to show off that that fancy GPU but. Uh, that's a trend I wouldn't mind seeing go away. Although, if you look at those fancy builds with the hard tubing and liquid cooling and everything, and they have the vertical GPU, that's where it kind of makes sense because it's a showcase. But invariably, it hurts thermals. So, I mean, you when you put the GPU close to the front class, it's just it's not a great idea for yeah. thermals. The options there for you. So uh, a yeah. uh, a gold review for the Fantex Eclipse P four hundred A. And again, remember the the A is is the key here. This is the newer airflow focused version. The standard P four hundred or P four hundred S is the, uh, the the glass front. So uh, I think it's a the, solid plastic panel on the. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah it's solid, a plastic panel with the noise insulation on the S. I think. Gotcha. Uh, so just make sure you get the right one for the build you're looking for. All right, let's jump into picks of the week. Let's. Uh, Josh had given us one before he left, uh, so let me pull that up real quick. And that is, of course, we've been complaining for a long time that we can't find the Ryzen 9 3900X in stock. Uh, but apparently it's been, for several hours today, it's been in stock at Amazon. Uh, really? Amazon US. At retail, four ninety dollars. Oh, it ships and sold by Amazon too. It's yep. not some. It's not some strange shady third party thing. Let me situation. refresh this yeah. and just make sure it's still actually available. That's uh, it's yeah. a miracle. Still in stock. The thirty nine hundred X in stock for for its MSRP. Absolutely. So, if you're interested in going, if you, if twelve is enough, if twelve cores is enough, and you don't need the sixteen from the thirty nine fifty. Go, go, my child, and upgrade. Um, all right, oh, yes. by the way, Kent, Kent, just one last thing on that Fantex thing. I'm sorry, we're nowhere in picks of the week, but Kent messaged to say that the vertical GPU bracket that he was sent actually fits in any of the Fantex cases, the newer Fantex cases, and the card is a bit closer to the motherboard with that bracket. So that's good to know. So they, they were okay. thinking about thermals there. Great. All right, good to know. Um, and let me see, where's your pick? It was that. Okay, I got it here. It's this one. So you've got a pick for us. Yes. Uh, I've been playing around with these. They're actually behind me. If you if you can see this startlingly uh, bright and attractive RGB keyboard, these are the Double Shot PBT keycaps from HyperX. They cost, I think, just it's $25 for the set at MSRP. And 
they have black ones. The black ones are already on the market. The white ones are new. These are their like pudding, the white pudding. They have like a darker white and then a translucent side. And, you know, completely changed the look of this existing HyperX keyboard I had laying around. But the other thing about it is, and I, I've got to write up the review. They they totally changed the feel of the keyboard. I, I was never a big keycap person. I've never changed out keycaps on a keyboard. I've, I, I thought it was all about key switches. The feel was all in the key switch. And these are the silver speed switches on this one that I never really liked. I, I was objective about them when I reviewed this particular keyboard. But I said I was struggling when I used it because, yeah, they felt really fast. And for gaming, it was fine. But just for general typing and things, I was making mistakes constantly because they had very lightweight keycaps. And the slightest touch against a corresponding key, you go for the P and you tap the O and it was actuating the O. Like it was driving me nuts. And I put these keycaps on. I don't know what it is about them. They're, they're a little bit heavier they they are they're more substantial they totally changed the feel of that keyboard and made it like one of my favorite keyboards to use now which just seems kind of strange but there's a there's a huge difference in quality from like your average abs keycap like a single shot keycap thinner lighter and moving to one of these pbt keycaps which are a, a more durable material they're thicker they're double shot construction just a fantastic upgrade I know there are a million custom key cap options out there in the world, but this is just a nice little retail package, 20, 25 bucks. And it works with MX style uh, key switches, obviously works with all the HyperX keyboards that are out there. And I'm about to finish up a review on a new HyperX keyboard. And like, this is the next step for me is, and I, I don't have the black set. I was kind of thinking this this keyboard needed the black set, but um, you know this tremendous difference in feel that kind of blew me away. I had no idea that keycaps made that much of a difference as far as how the key switch actually feels. It changes the way the actuation feels. I can't really describe it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've, I've uh, outside of just testing a few different keyboards that had. Uh, interchangeable keycaps i've never personally gone and, and tried to try to swap things out but uh good to know so you said a review will be coming uh yeah well i'll write it up i cool. just i've had them for a little bit now it's time yeah all right my pick is uh something just sort of a little uh handy thing and it's a uh there's been a ton of these and i experimented with them a few years ago and they were all junk but i recently found one a month or so ago and it's a a multi uh, multi-port charging cable. So you got one USB type A that branches out into four uh, charging cables for your, your devices. In this case, with this one, it's uh, one type C, two, uh, two lightning, uh, and uh, one um, micro USB. And it's, it works well. The quality of the cable is, is good. You can charge with all four at the same time. Now, obviously, you're limited. This isn't going to be like your your primary fast charging thing. I think the the cable overall is limited to five volt uh, five volts at two amps. So uh, you're you're not going to get max charging. And obviously, if you plug in like a couple iPads, you're going to go to the extreme of trickle charging. But if you want to charge your phone and your wireless headset, or even a couple smaller you know phones, it works well. And it's something 
like I said, it's not, it shouldn't be your primary thing. Uh, cause it's not going to give you the best performance, but you throw this in your travel bag, you keep it in your car or at the office. And it's, uh, it were it, the, like I said, the quality is good. It works well. I've been using it for about a month and, and it's been, been perfect. And so it's just kind of a handy kind of backup to have. So you've got some flexibility there, uh, for your charging. And this particular one, we'll have the link in the show notes. It's, it's, you know, it's a no-name brand. It's a USAMS or USAMS or I don't know how you pronounce <laughs> that, but you know, it's some, some brand, but it's got 162 reviews, four and a half stars. And from my experience thus far, uh, pretty good, $15. So it's not, not too bad, especially if you consider buying four braided charging cables, um, Although of course in that case you could get full charging to each of them, but then you'd need to have four, four plugs and so uh, so yeah check it out. Uh, it's it's a handy thing to have uh, just so you always have the right connection and and at least nowadays with between those three types of connectors you're probably covered. Did you get the does does yours come in that sort of multicolored? Uh, mm -hmm. If you're watching the video, you'd see something that looks exactly like a component. To HDMI adapter, it does, I looked at that yeah. like, oh, it looks like component audio, but where's the uh, other channel of audio? Because there's yeah. there's the RGB, but where's the white? No, it's just just a coincidence there. But uh, and there's a little mm. LED that shows when it's active. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, it's it's a nice. I mean, I was surprised at, at that price. The quality is good, and it's held up. It's a two pack. And, oh, that's right. Two fifteen dollars gets you. you two okay, so fifteen dollars you get two. So they're only seven fifty each. Yeah, that's that's true. I forgot about bad. that. That's not yeah. bad. That's not bad. For the the total cable four feet. Is, is four yeah, feet. That's not bad. I mean, I, you probably wouldn't want to go much longer than that. There are probably reasons they kept it to four feet because of like signal integrity and the fact that they're splitting it off four different ways. But you know, that's actually that's actually not bad. I might have to look at that because there's yeah. there's always that. Any of those awkward times where I've lived in a divided home where my wife is on iPhone and I have an Android phone and we're in the car and there's that one charging cable and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to charge. Tra oh yeah. I went back to Android and now I can't charge my phone. That's at 4%. We're going somewhere for the day. Yeah. This is like the ultimate car charging cable perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be a good for, good for that. Uh, and with the two pack, you know, one in the car, one in the office, one in your bag, whatever works for you. But, uh, all right, well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, this was a Thursday edition, but normally we do these on Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, which works out to 2 a.m. UTC Thursday morning. Uh, you can join us at pcpro.com slash live if uh, you want to join us while we record live. And then the edited version of the show will go up uh, usually the, the morning after uh, at YouTube for the video and via RSS uh, for your audio version for your podcast uh, app. And we, I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again. Uh, I put out a call. Basically, we, we offer, we have the video version on YouTube and we offer an RSS video version as well. Uh, so, you know, video podcast in that sense where it comes down through iTunes or whatever. Uh, and I noticed in our usage statistics, that's like less than one half of 1% of our total audience is actually using that. But because they're very large video files, it's, it's expensive to host. So I asked last week, and I'll ask again in case anyone missed the show last week. If you use that, let me know. If it's important to you, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to keep it going if someone is truly getting use out of it. But if, if, it's, if it's not being really used and uh, you can get by with the video on YouTube instead, uh, let us know there so we can, we can cut that off, uh, save a couple hundred bucks a month in hosting.
So uh, leave a comment, a tweet, a comment in this YouTube video, or go to our website at the podcast post and leave a comment there or send an email, uh, jim at pcpro.com. And just let us know. I just want to make sure we're not being wasteful uh, with any of our resources. So thanks so much for joining us, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.